Hello and welcome back to Audio Pong. How's everyone doing? I hope you're all doing good on the other side. Marco, today we have a special guest, the magnificent Dave Gordon. That's right. Dave Gordon, man. He's in the house. And so it's a pleasure. We've been working with Dave at Medieval Times for quite some time. And he doesn't really say much about his personal life, it doesn't it seems like. And but he seems like a very interesting person. He does, I really want yeah. to get to know him a He's little the kind more. of person that I would say he, every time you ask him a question, he's got an intelligent answer, but he never boasts. I never heard him t- really talk about himself or, or gloat. And maybe that's what we're going to try to get him to do today for us. <laughs> so just so we can see if he's like an international spy or what he does. Man of mystery. A man of mystery. But uh, why don't you start, Dave, by uh, telling our audience a little bit about yourself. Introduce yourself. Okay. My name is David or Dave Gordon. Um I live in Bartlett, Illinois. I am on my second marriage to my beautiful wife, Molly, who will celebrate with me 23 years of marriage this July. Um, oh, congratulations. Why, thank you very much. We Brady Bunched three kids. So I had uh, two kids from my first marriage, and she had a son from her marriage. And so we're now a combined blended family of five. Um, the girls are wow. about to turn. Yeah. Uh, let's see. They're going to be 34, I think, this year. Yeah, I think. And they're both getting married this year. Wee! Um, wow. So I'm going to sell a kidney and then we'll be okay. Um, then you'll have money. Yeah. And Zachary, my stepson, lives in Kalamazoo, Michigan. He is a filmmaker and a cinematographer. So I didn't know he had a stepson named Zach. Yes, as a matter of fact. Only he needs his H is not only silent, it's invisible. It's invisible. Oh, so he's 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 a C Yeah. Uh, So yeah. yeah, I always thought the H was weird. Well, yeah, it was like if I'm gonna take off the Ari, why not take off the H as well? But anyway. Um, so yeah, I'm, uh, I'm old and inappropriate, um, till I'll turn six. Were you ever young and inappropriate? (laughs) Well, I was then, yeah, I've always pretty much been inappropriate. Um, but yeah, I'll turn 66 in the fall. Um, and, uh, carry a couple of jobs. I work at U.S. Bank as a software trainer during the day, telecommuting, working from home. And, um. So we run webinars, we develop training content and such. And then I've also, like you guys said, work at Medieval Times. So when you teach, is it um, like a video series or is it more of like a personal, like what you would in a class? You know what it is? It's a particular product that the bank offers to those in the freight industry. So shippers and carriers, the truck drivers and the people who need the boxes moved. Uh, And it's a product the bank offers. And I train the new users on how to use the software. So it's done on a webinar type of basis over the Internet. That's That's an IT job. That's what I'm trying to get into. That sounds interesting. Yeah, I uh, I spent 25 years in mortgage banking IT before I decided to enter the training. Wow. So, yeah, totally. You see, that's what that's what that's what I'm trying to get at. All right, so let's start. Let's go back in time a little bit. I want to know first of all, uh, first of about your acting career. When did you start with that? When did you? Were you always an actor as a kid? Mm, 
high school senior year, I got into doing uh, drama at my high school level, and I did uh, three plays in one year. So that was kind of cool, and I enjoyed it. Oh, wow. Um, and I've been pretty much in the theater on and off since then. So, God, that's a lot of years. But yeah, I started in high school. I went to college at Southern Illinois University to uh, study aviation technology. I was going to be an airline pilot. That was my big dream. Oh, wow. Yeah. So how how far did you go along in the classes for that? About a year and a half. And there's a kind of a accompanying story with it. So the goal was this plan that I set up as a junior in high school to um, become an airline pilot, but I was going to go into this program that Southern offered at the time. It was two years of uh, uh, aircraft and power plant, basically the mechanics license that you get from the FAA. They had another year and a half of aviation electronics to get a certificate in that. And then a few gen ed classes, and you ended up with a bachelor's of science in a specialization of aviation technology. But the plan besides that was to join Air Force ROTC. So when I graduated, I'd go in and be able to fly for the Air Force. And everybody wanted to fly fighters. And I was like, no, give me big, slow jets. I want to be an airline pilot. I just need those hours that Mm -hmm. I'll never be able to afford on my own. So that was the plan. And you might have noticed. I have on glasses and Mm -hmm. wonderful thing that happened for the world and kind of rotten for me was the Vietnam War. So all these pilots that were in the air force that had perfect vision came home. And so the pilot slot that was originally intended for me became a navigator slot, which really wouldn't get me into the airlines the way I wanted to. So I was left Without my big plan that I'd set up two years ago or three. Have you have you pursued uh, piloting since then? Do you fly like casually or I mean recreationally? No, I um I had dreams of it. I was always you know again that costs a lot of money too getting a private pilot's license. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I uh, yeah, it can uh, be like a hundred thousand, right? It's 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 quite up there. It's been so long since I even looked at it, I would have no idea. But I wouldn't doubt it'd be a hundred grand. You're buying those hours on your own. Right. Yeah. So anyway, I got out of that and decided, well, I better go home. So I'm spending a lot of money here at Southern and not studying anymore. But in the time that I realized that I lost my pilot slot, I was like, well, I'm not going to continue this career. I don't want to be a mechanic either. So I uh, was still on my lease in college and the remainder of the time. And so I started doing theater at Southern Illinois. And I wasn't a part oh, so you, of the okay. Yeah, I wasn't part of the program, but there's always MFA students who need actors to do their plays. Uh, I got seen by a couple of people who asked me to do their shows. And uh, so I spent about the last six months in college doing theater and then came home and decided I was going to be an actor. And uh, so, okay, so when we talked, when I talked to other actors, there's always a special role I feel like most actors really like to play. Like you always, it seems to me like kindly people, gentle people always want to play villains. Like it's a chance to just, you know, flip the card, so to speak. Are you yeah. like that? Do you really like playing a villain? You know, or is there I, a different type of role of character? On stage, I don't think I've ever played a villain, honestly. I uh, never gave that much thought. I think it, it's always sounded like it would be well, fun. 
You but, played Sweeney you know, Todd, right? I wouldn't call him a villain, no, but he's he's definitely an anti-hero kind of character. Well, see, and maybe that's the conundrum for actors. It's like if I'm playing somebody who's absolutely horrible, what I have to do is make them approachable and relatable to an audience in some way, or they just don't care. They just hate them, right? So I always mm-hmm. saw screening as tragic more than evil. And uh, but that's a good point. Because I did play Sweeney. That was one of my bucket list roles. So I was like, great, you cast me. Wonderful. Let's do the show. Now I can die because all my bucket list roles are done. <laughs> not really. Not. <laughs> no, I just need to get a more bucket list. <laughs> but yeah, so that's a really cool perspective that I never really thought about. He's horribly evil, but I never pictured him that way. Well, I mean, especially with media today, we, we have a lot of anti-heroes in film, like take Deadpool, Morbius, you got Venom, um, all these like literal anti-heroes. Um, sure. But I don't know. I can't think of any any but films. There really. also seems to be, don't you feel like a lot of uh, villains are becoming sort of like heroes now because their stories are being rewritten to be sort of like they were misunderstood. They it's, were never bad. Yeah, or, you especially know what I mean? in Marvel. Marvel yeah. does that a lot. Like even... Dr. Doom, he's like, he's treated as almost a, a good guy now. He's like, you know, he's actually doing all this for the good of his people. That's so strange he, to he, me. He's just like, <laughs> I know, no, Doom is like, it, it's in his name, Doom. <laughs> but like, he, he's portrayed as kind of like uh, this this guy who just cares about his people and he wants to, to promote the ultimate uh, prosperity for them. And yeah, no, at, they at turned, cost. they just turned, well, they like turned it into patriotism, like. Yeah, but they do that. sort of they, harsh DC patriotism. Did that with um, <laughs> Bla- uh, Black Adam, who's uh, Shazam. Well, that well, that was the example. Like watching the trailer and reading about because you know, obviously, we're comic book fans. Are you a comic book fan, Dave? Do you are you interested at all in like Marvel characters stuff like that? No, I'm, I'm so out of touch with it. I I hear names and I well, what do you how, yeah. Sorry, that's okay. I respect it. Oh my god, what a business and. Uh, you know, I saw some of the films, um, but yeah, I've never been MCU and then I got to the universe and I kind of went, okay, it's over my head. <laughs> so how do you feel then about like fantasy characters in general? Like when you, when you take roles or do you look, do you prefer roles that are about real people or are more realistic or are you like, where do you, where do you stand on that as far as like fantastical characters and whatnot? That's a good question because it's kind of interesting at this point. I was, uh, I've, I've tried in a couple of times in my life to go ahead and pursue acting as a career, as a main career. And then I realized that I had this pesky habit of liking to eat and I procreate. So it was like, yeah, I can't live in a one bedroom studio with a bathroom down the hall and live on ramen. Um, So I had to pursue other avenues and just keep my hand in theater where I could. So I would still pursue roles that I really wanted to play and try and get them. Man of La Mancha is one that I've never been able to do. Don Quixote that I would love to. That's still on the bucket list. So I'm not dead yet. Don Quixote, yeah. Uh, What a character. (laughs) Um, and, And the interesting thing about that play to me always was that it's generally portrayed by somebody young who ages themselves to become Cervantes. And yeah, that's interesting. That's a good point. So playing it as an older person, it would be like, okay, well, 
gonna either darken this up or lose it. Um, but you know what I mean. I mean, well, it was played recently by an older by an older gentleman by an older actor, wasn't it? They, you know, in a movie adaptation. It, yeah, I can't yeah. remember his name. He he he's an, he's a well known actor. He's I think an English actor. I can't remember his name, but he was in movies like uh, Brazil and. Um, uh, Tomorrow Never Dies, James Bond mm. film. He played the the main villain. I can't remember the, the gentleman's name, uh, but and- I I agree with you. Yeah, that's a very good point. Like it's always played by a younger, even Johnny Depp, who's in the news a lot right now. He played a uh, sort of a a weird version of Don Quixote, mm-hmm. and uh, I and that is strange. That's a really I don't know, just to me that's a really good point because he's is an old character. So why do they keep casting young? I guess because he's supposed to be so romantic and suave and sort of you know um, debonair. Even well, though he's I mean, kind of crazy. Yeah, I mean, the story of Cervantes is, you know, he's a prisoner and he's entertaining prisoners and about the story of this hero. So he has to become it. And that's kind of the mm. conceit of the play. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, you know, I would pursue roles. But as I got into these other careers to be able to, like, pay a mortgage and buy insurance, um, I was able to just kind of keep my hand in and begin to even now really go for either the bucket list roles that we've talked about or something that I'm requested to do. Um, but I'm not actively pursuing parts just saying, Oh, I want to, I want to go audition for that. Or I want to go audition for this um, for a number of reasons. One of which is I've got a pretty good job at medieval times, which takes up as much time as I would probably be at rehearsals. And when I've been at Medieval Times and done shows like 1776 or, or um, uh, Sweeney Todd, it's been lucky that they've been able to adjust my performance schedule so I could still do rehearsals. Because those That's are always good. Yeah. three or four nights a week, but I'd still be able to like do a weekend evening show or a Sunday show when there aren't generally rehearsals scheduled. Well, you mentioned earlier that you pursued it. You pursued acting as a full time gig. Can you talk about that? Like, what did what was your game plan with that? What did you try? What what did you succeed at? What did you fail at with trying to be a full time actor? What does that even mean to someone like me, who can you know just dreams about it but hasn't really pursued it? Well, you know, the business has changed so much from when I was doing that. When I was doing that, your modus operandi was you had to get headshots, you had to have a resume. And then you began mailing your headshot and resume to talent agencies who got thousands of them. So they would take a look at your resume like, oh, okay, there's lines on it. They'd look at your picture and go, can I book him? I can't book him. I don't know if he's any good. I'll find out if he's any good if I look at him and go, yeah, I could possibly book him. And then the remainder of your time, you would go generally once a week. I believe it was Wednesdays. And just hang out at the, I hang out at the agencies. I'm brought in some more headshots, brought in some more resumes. Got anything for me? Just to get FaceTime with hmm. people. Um, everything now is a, a submit a video submission, and that was even before mm-hmm. COVID when it kind of became, yeah, we don't want you anywhere near us. Just send us a video. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but even before that, it, it had changed to become more digital, which is cool. Um, Headshots are still expensive, although there are more and more people with the skills now to be able to produce a decent headshot for you. But it's one of those types yeah, of yeah. things. It makes... It's a car brochure. No, I was just gonna I was just gonna agree with you. Right. Yeah. It's really a car brochure. No, especially with the digital. 
that's kind of cool. Um, you know, there's tips they say about your headshot picture. You know, make them wonder what you're thinking about in that picture. It just hooks. Oh, things. like the the Mona Lisa smile. <laughs> there you go. Kind of like puts a kind of lure on your face. Yeah. So it's you know they take a hundreds of shots if you've got a good session and then you start picking through these and sifting through these and oh my eyes are a little more open in this one versus that one and it's yeah it's it's exhausting and you also have to remember that one you're going to deal with a whole lot of rejection and you have to remember that it's not personal it's truly one of two things either that casting director has a vision of what they want that person to look like in this production and you ain't it not your fault you were born that way (laughs) or you come in and you do your monologues and you do your audition and you're basically saying this is the type of table i build and they go it's probably a sturdy table but i don't like that table it's like okay Mm. it's your product so in the end what i realized as a professional actor at that time anyway was the job was auditioning your work is going to auditions. The paid vacation is actually getting cast. <laughs> That's an interesting way to put it, yeah. yeah. But the job is auditioning, and anybody that thinks it isn't is either really well-connected in whether it's parental or you know in the business already or in different things or started when they were four, um, or they're just in ungodly talent. And everybody mm-hmm. else. So when you it. when you send in a headshot and resume, is it for a particular role or is it for uh, a pr- particular production? No, is it, it like kind of like do you just send your in your and they just see if they can fit you in anywhere, or is it like? Yeah, well, again, if it's going to an agent, you know, they're pretty much like, okay, can I sell this person? You know, what's different about this person or where could I see this person fitting in? And there's even themes of headshot series. You might have your commercial shots. You might have your uh, theatrical shots. You might have your uh, business shots or your print ad shots. So, you know, you're in there in your plaid shirt like me with a hard hat on, you know, for that print ad. Because it's the business itself isn't just being on a stage. You know, it's doing television, it's doing commercials, it's doing print ads, it's doing uh, industrials where you'll go and be a spokesperson at a booth back when they used to actually still have conventions and such. So, you mm-hmm. know, as, as a Really, performer, they would hire actors for conventions? conventions. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and all of them went for it because, again, you're working job to job. The minute you get a job and you're hired and getting paid to do a theater, theatrical production or some kind of production... The next day, if not that afternoon, you're looking for your next gig. Mm-hmm. So is it, it a bit of a snowball effect where you get one role, the next role is kind of easier? Or is it just the same thing? It's always the same amount of difficulty to get the next role. Uh, again, it depends how connected you are. The thing I used to say is I was pretty vanilla. You know, even when I was younger, my look wasn't particularly, oh, he looks Mediterranean or he looks rugged or he looked, you know, it was just like, oh, he's a guy. Um, So there's probably five of me in this auditioning group. And the casting director has worked with that one before and liked Mm. the experience. Why are they going to take a risk on me? I look the same. Right. 
Yeah, yeah especially if you didn't become more expensive or, yeah, right. Well, yeah. Makes I sense. Could be, yeah. I could be hiding some horrible, you know, disfigurement or some drug, you know, addiction or whatever. And they don't know me from Adam, but they know that guy. And they've worked with him before and he was solid. Are you familiar with the term ego exhaustion? I'm not sure I've ever heard it placed that way, but it's something that I bring up, I guess, kind of often. Yeah, we've talked about it a few um, times. I'm kind of tying in our next episode here a little bit because we're going to be doing uh, a future episode about um, personal interactions, like and cues, and social- cues, social cues, and how you know a person's charisma uh, and something like that. And and obviously. Actors and actresses in general have a lot, I would say, maybe copious amounts of charisma. But ego exhaustion is about um, wearing out your personas, right? And then mm-hmm. returning to yourself, whatever you are at your base, whatever the the, the the sub-level is of Dave Gordon, that's what you return to in your quiet moment, right? When you're left alone, you don't have to worry about or think about what, you, what you're saying because someone else is present or how you look or how you're acting, and we have different personas. The idea is that we have different personas for the groups of people we're around or engaging with, right? Whether sure. it's a, a significant other or it's, you know, people at work or maybe, you know, a million people at a at a, a food fest, a festival or something. So ego exhaustion is when that becomes too much and it wears you out and you, you can no longer perform those personas. And I always felt that that is something that we all deal with, but actors especially they're really sort of trying to like build up their endurance for ego exhaustion. If that makes sense, they're trying to be, they're trying to create personas that can last a really long time. Is that, does that make sense for how you approach a role or how you build up a character when you take a role? Or do you like, what's your method for that? How would you say that applies to you at all? Even at say your current job, which we can talk about as well. Yeah. Um, that's a really good question. And it kind of places me in the mindset of when I go into an audition, what am I looking for? So um, especially if it's a stage production and it's something I'm familiar with, um, there'll be a persona that I could put on for that. Uh, One of my favorite roles was playing uh, John Adams in 1776. So he's basically Mm, a play you know he's pretty much obnoxious and disliked um but fiery in his devotion and commitment um one of his big words is commitment and uh so there's an attitude i think i bring onto the stage about it but it's still me um but there's that sense of who is this person that i'm trying to portray and a lot of times it's hard because if you're going into a cold reading or you've only seen like sides or those little cuttings from the script and you're not familiar with the piece then it's pretty much a they literally say it cold read because it is you're kind of like oh okay that's what i'm taking from this director may have a totally different vision of what that person is thinking and being and saying at that time so i try and go in yeah, I, I, as close as I can attend to what it is. And if I have time to prep, that's obviously easier. If I'm walking into something cold or I'm not familiar with it, then it's pretty much that, okay, is it improv? Not really. It's more along the lines of trying to be perceptive. Um, is that more exciting to have a cold read or do you, would you prefer to like prepare? Would you rather be surprised? 
depends on the role. I, you know, what I would be going for. It's luckily I felt that if I was okay at anything, it was cold reads. I could pretty much be perceptive on the on the text or the prose. Um, but not all the time. I've crashed and burned on those. So <laughs> you know, it's 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 really hard to say which is easier. On the one hand, there's no prep. So if I'm really busy and I'm walking into a cold read, I'll see it when I see it. Um, but on the other hand, you're also building up some, whether you want to or not, you're going to be building up that want for that role. When I'm auditioning, when I was just auditioning and auditioning and auditioning for, okay, you have got this call and that call and this call. I'm going to go to that one and this one and that one. You don't have a whole lot of time to prep. And you're also not getting that attached to it because it's, oh, I need a guy who's 25 to 35, who's about this height, who, you know, has this in his background. You go, oh, okay, I can kind of relate to that. So you're walking in, but you're honestly like, yeah, I didn't get it. Oh, well, move on. Jobs auditioning, always remember. Um, But if you're really attached to it, I think that prep brings it more. And then you do have that desire. And in the end, if you don't get it, a little harder disappointment. So I'm it's I'm torn on what it would want to be because a lot of, especially at this point in my life now where I've got you know the gig the day gig the medieval times gig it's like theater for me at this point is one of my main jobs insofar as the role I play at medieval the roles I play at medieval times um, so that scratches the creative itch as it were um, but when Let's I'm- talk about that actually for medieval times I'm curious. Um, because what you do there is something that I pursued at one time, and I still think it's really interesting. I always wonder, though, how much freedom do you really have with that role? Are you able, now that you've been doing it for some years? Do you get away with more? Um, you know, what, what's fun with you about it? What's still fun about it? I should say. Yeah, and that's a really good question. Um, because in some roles you do. It all depends on the venue. For specifically medieval times. Um, we're pretty much encouraged by the national show director and our show director, Camden, to be uh, very true to the script, very tight to the script. It's written in a particular way and it has specific beats and rhythms to it that drive the action forward to get it up to it. So in some different dinner theater roles I've played in the past, we had all kinds of freedom to be able to mess around and enjoy it and play. The, The thing for me, in doing a long running show, which I've done a lot of most recently in my career, these long running gigs, is keeping it fresh. And that's where the craft comes in more than just the emotion of acting or just the the sense of getting into the character. You still do that. But the job is that when one of the other characters says something, that's the first time I've ever heard that. There is a tendency to get, you know, I know these dance steps. I've done this dance a million times. So the joke I usually make is if people that I work with at Medieval Times, and they say, oh, okay, I go, you know, I'm a tape. I'm basically pushing a tape because it is a dance. It's a vocal dance. It's a physical dance, but it is a dance. And you find that place that you feel like it's successful or you get feedback that yeah that's successful that's what i wanted that to be so you try and replicate that but yet for the audience that's the first time i ever heard that 
That's the first time he ever insulted me. That's the first time I ever saw somebody get hit by that. That's an exciting perspective to have. I like that. I'm going to, I'm going to remember that. Yeah. Because like, that's the most important part I would say, or maybe you would say is to react, not to act. Well, the fact that every audience for for the most part is brand new to the experience. So that's to always put it in their perspective is exciting, right? Even if you've done it, a thousand times or whatever yeah for sure well it's just like in the fights too you're not supposed to just act you're not you're supposed to have purpose behind the movement like this is the you've never been cut by this guy before so you're supposed to react like see that it, it applies to that too yeah. because even if you're bored with whatever fight you're doing for whatever reason um you can look at it that way and yeah it's like i'm gonna hit i'm gonna make sure this that each one of these hits is just as it's hard purposeful. as it's purposeful right. yeah it's like like i am going for a head strike oh my god he almost got me <laughs> you know <laughs> Um, you were talking about keeping strict to the script and stuff like that into the beats, but I, I do notice that like all the different MCs and Cedrics and, uh, they have their own personality to the role that they bring, especially sure. with, I, I remember the, in the old show, the MC had the, the spirits joke, right? It's, um, and yours was my favorite because you, you would always make like the crowd, like, like feel not really sorry for you, but empathize with your, like <laughs> your, your, your bad, the bad joke you had to make. And it was like, it, oh, I don't know. I, I found that very, very interesting that you, you were able to get like the, really the crowd involved into it even. Yeah. And I think that's important too. It's the connection with the audience and, in some of the other gigs I did prior to uh, Medieval Times, there was more of that in the moment, read an audience, get a perception type of feel. But mm. I think one of the things that I also try and remember about that, not just because the structure works and the, the mechanics of it work, and there's a, a movement to the evening that you want or the performance that you want everyone to be able to feel, was something that a, a, another performer friend of mine had said. And I don't know if he made it up or if he just heard it from somebody and we quoted it, but it was at tonight's performance, there are going to be any number of people who have never seen a live performance. That'll be their first time seeing a live performance. There'll also be a number of people in that audience where it'll be their last time to ever see a live performance. Yeah, that's oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. They yeah. both deserve a hundred percent commitment. So when people come and say, you know, how big's the house tonight? How big's the crowd? How's the crowd? I'm like, they're all fifteen hundred to me, because it's yeah. the same thing. And that's the other part of the tape that I I joke about being a tape, but that commitment to each production, each performance of the same production, I think, in my mind anyway, just has to be at that level. No, I agree for sure. Absolutely. You have to, like you said, like you have to give each guest the, their money's worth, if you would, right? Because it could Hopefully be the first show, it could be the last show. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you don't want to give a subpar performance, I mean, especially like in, in sports. Um, they always say give 100% uh, or give 110% the whole, all four quarters, not just mm-hmm. the last quarter, not the, no, the first quarter, all four. Like you have to play as hard as you can at the beginning, all the way through to the end, especially, you know, at the end, because that's when you're the most exhausted. So that goes, applies to, to the acting, to the, to the fights and everything. It's just like, this is, this is always important, no matter how many people are there. Yeah. Sure. I never... When I was performing, I've never cared about how big the show sizes were because my right. my job was always the same. You know, it's like I'm doing the same thing regardless of how many people were there. Absolutely. And I'm always 
put it, I'm always trying to improve myself and, and do the best that I can do. And as long as I did the best that I can do, I'm happy with the job that was done. Sure. If, if I, if I, you know, took it easy one day, then I'd feel bad about it. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be proud of my work. And I think that's important to do it. Yeah. Your dignity. Right. Yeah. Any, any job you have to always try your hardest and that that's the only i feel like that's the the main way to judge your performances based on the last performance right is that you can't necessarily compare yourself to others because others have different experiences and routes to where they got but you can always improve upon yourself and as long as you're doing that you're progressing and that's what's important right that's my way i view it and it reads i think, I think the audience appreciates yeah. commitment I think by the same token. And then outside of the acting and the emotional parts of it, you know, what I've found is helpful is I also have to remember there's logistics to a performance, especially in a big place like, like medieval times, but even other theaters, it's the same thing. And by that, I mean, so if it's a smaller crowd, they're not going to feel as comfortable either laughing or cheering or whatever out loud. So what you want to do is make them feel comfortable in being able to do that. But also, if somebody's screaming really big, the last thing you want to do is draw attention to them. Again, it's for the guest experience. But also, even things like there's a movement to a performance. And you might have noticed this sometime in, at different shows or whatever. But one of the early things I learned in in particular this type of dinner theater or this type of theater is you have a capability and a chance to move the audience forward to keep things going forward so at the end of a blackout for example don't hold that more than a beat or two before you start speaking again otherwise the mm. whole evening feels choppy there's a too much pause here there's too much pause here it's sections as opposed mm. to hopefully riding a wave all the way to the top of the end evening where they've been up and up and up and up and up and every time they've seen something guess what here comes something better so at the end, not only did they get their money's worth, they got more than their money's worth and walk out going, I didn't expect that to be that good. That's what you hope. And that, that's quite the compliment, really. <laughs> I don't think there's a better compliment than that when you're, ple you're, you're pleased more than you expected to be. Right. So, okay, there's, there's another thing that you do, and I'm not sure that I have the term properly, but you are also an officiant. Is that the proper way to say it? <laughs> or exactly. a wedding, exactly. wedding officiator? Totally. I've done. I, I guess that's too broad a term. I don't know. What, what's the proper title? I think it's efficient. I truly do. Because it's not necessarily a minister. Although I am a proud ordained minister of the Universal Life Church. Um, so that's what I wanted to know. Yeah. Okay. So you are a minister and you, and okay. So you have a church. Now, how did you get into that? Did that start with your, with, with your religion or your religious beliefs in general? Or did you, like, what's the story behind you becoming a minister? With me becoming a minister was Edward Michechek and Kirsten, whose name I could never spell. I could never pronounce her last name. Petrangeli, I believe it was. But <laughs> um, we'd like you to officiate our wedding. And I went, okay, are you sure? She said, yeah, we really want you to. So I went, okay, went online, boop, 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 boop. 30 seconds later, I was a minister of the Universal Life Church. And wow. if I spent 30 bucks, I got, you know, some marriage certificates and a book on how to do it. I had no idea. I'd seen civil ceremonies. That's awesome. But that I makes me want to do it. Yeah, that's really cool. <laughs> you know what's weird? 
I thought, okay, there's a once in a lifetime experience. I'll put that in my little, you know, memory bank and tell people, sure, I'm a minister. Um, and then when I learned about it, there are people that do do this for a living. They charge anywhere from two hundred to five hundred dollars to just be a wow. wedding officiant. Now I'm sure they got better skills than me, but I made it through Edward's wedding and Kirsten's wedding. Okay, I'll be honest. I was at Edward's wedding, and until now, I thought you'd been doing this for years. Like, yeah, I thought you've done honestly. it before Edward's uh, wedding as well. <laughs> you you carried yourself with, with as though you had years of experience. So maybe, well, hey, maybe acting, maybe being an actor in some way, in even in a legitimate way. Can be well, a good, I'm sure you know, that it, it translates. It has to because it's all about public speaking and yeah, and, you know, it's so it's pretty much a script, right? That you've created well, yourself. Yeah, I mean, and generally the way I do it is like you know the lucky thing about this Universal Life Church, um, which is free. It truly is free to become a minister. You can just get the extra accoutrement if you want to, but otherwise it's free. Um, but they have all kinds of resources online. So they have different sample ceremonies of scripts, and you can kind of download them for free, and you can chop them up. So I went to them, for example, the first time I did it, and said, okay, here's kind of the sections. Here's the greeting. Here's the invocation. Here's the this. Here's the that. Here's a religious ceremony. Here's a simple ceremony. Here's a traditional ceremony. And just kind of, it's a big word doc. It's like, put together your ceremony. I'll be happy to officiate it. Because in the end, what they're basically getting is, yeah, if anybody legal says, are they really married? It's like, yeah, that dude's a minister. So in all the states <laughs> that recognize it, that's pretty much all they need. And um, so, yeah, it was just kind of putting together that with them until they had what they wanted. And that's the same thing I did with Carrie Ann and Anthony last uh, that last year or two years ago. I can't remember. I think it was last year. Yeah, I can't I remember either. Yeah. yeah. Well, how many weddings have you officiated then? Two. Two, just the two. okay. So you're gonna <laughs> two. Are you gonna do your daughters? Huh? Oh no 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 no. Are no. you gonna have to, no? No. You know it's funny. At my own most my own second wedding, I guess probably at the first two. I'm not a rock. I was blathering on blithering on the platform where we were getting married and like, you know my heart just kind of pours out my mouth and it's like oh he's just pathetic um <laughs> oh, no. I, I doubt anyone thinks that you're pathetic <laughs> i probably would go really um but both of the weddings that i did officiate at one point in the time there was a lump that came up in my throat when i was talking about carrie ann and anthony when i was talking about um edward and kirsten it was just that sense of okay, you got to keep this together. You're, you're an officiant. You're not just a, a friend who's mm -hmm. making your toast half in the bag. Um, and then Sarah and Michael, I'm doing theirs in September. So they asked me to do it as That's well. That's right, yeah. And, but yeah, but getting back to that point, people make money at it. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to charge anything for crying out loud. I'll give you a wedding card with a gift inside. That's the deal. I'm just standing up here doing something you asked me to do. You could have asked me to, Wax your car. <laughs> as long as you don't cry while you're waxing a car. Yeah, then, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, but don't cry while you're doing it. Yeah, I won't. <laughs> Would you ever do that as like a uh, as a side gig, uh, like and try and make a little extra money? Wow, if I was eating cat food, you know, uh, maybe if I was down to eating cat mm. food and. They said, well, I could hire myself out as an efficient. No, I do it when people ask. 
Okay, so it's not it's not like um as as fun as acting is for you. It's, it's not something you would you know, for. and I I would be concerned. I don't know. It's interesting because each one has been kind of different because it's a, obviously a different ceremony and they're different folks and the relationship between me and them is different. But I don't know if it turned into a gig. I'd never really thought about it. Again, if I was, you know, if I need money, I'm not above doing it. Yeah, right. That's so, making me think about it. That's for sure. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm trying I to imagine definitely. myself in a suit with the way I looked. It's, <laughs> what do I have to clean up about my image to be, be the, the metal officiant? Yeah, the metal. Yeah. Maybe like maybe I could. That could be my edge. Yeah, I'm the metal officiant. Yeah, why not? I mean, and number two, work. nothing. You'd look great. You look. <laughs> My God, I, love, I love that you just looked it up online that someone asked you to be their minister and you're like yeah <laughs> well, I <laughs> just google it for that you know of people that uh, were becoming ministers online i think somebody on late night did it i think my god i think steve Dahl did it back in the day but yeah it was just like you can become a minister so i was like oh well go check that out i'll be damned i can't so yeah so do you have to have like a certificate? Do you have to be like a minister to officiate or how, what are the parameters that you have to. From what I understand. And since all of them, have, all two of them have been in Illinois so far, uh, I understand that a universal life church ministers cert, you know, certificated, they could look it up and go, yeah, this guy is in fact registered it makes the marriage legal in some States in the union. I won't mention any names. Uh, there's more craziness involved. So as I understand it, but I haven't needed that. So I don't know, but yeah, it's totally legal. It's, yeah. it's, it's the real deal. Hmm. But you know, getting and, and it's, it's free. That's, that's pretty cool. You can just become a minister like that. Well, yeah. I mean, when I was a little kid and being inculcated and indoctrinated with the Catholic church, you know, I was an altar boy and heck I was head altar boy, which, no lightning hit me. Okay. Um, head altar boy. What is a head altar boy? What's that job entail? It was a scheduling. It was pre, uh, pre-opening up the ERA for altar servers. So at that point, it was just boys. So, um, But yeah, it does the scheduling. And as far as what masses, who's doing what, blah, 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 blah. It's basically class council. Um, but I have responsibility. Uh, and so, I, I mean, we were devout Catholics. In the great state of Georgia, which is kind of off-putting for most Georgians. Um, but yeah, and so we moved to Chicago, and I was the altar boy at that church, and then we went to a different one, and I was the altar boy at that church. And around the eighth grade, I looked around at our church campus, and they were constantly asking for money, as all churches do. Um, and I went, okay, they really need money. And they had this perfectly good, or it looked perfectly good, rectory where the priests lived. And um, they uh, said, yeah, we need to replace it. So I said, okay, it was a little two-bedroom house right on the facility. I thought, I understand that. They need to replace it. They put in a six-flat. Now, they have visiting priests come to church from, you know, different parishes and such. So they needed some place to put them up. But a six-flat? I called it the Holy Hilton, and I really, started, <laughs> I really started to get disenchanted with a lot of the Catholic Church, and pretty much quit going. I, I lost my faith at a very young age. I think actually I was 
like seven years old. In fact, when, you know, I lost uh, my faith and I lost Santa Claus, everything that was essentially um, supposed to make me feel unverified and supposed to make me feel warm and cozy. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I just have such a analytical mind, but I'm curious. So are you still a practicing Catholic or is that, is that just a part of your youth, part of your childhood? It was just a part of my childhood. I mean, and we were in Georgia and for some reason they were like really in a hurry. So I'm not sure why, but in our second grade, we were did we did our first communion. In our third grade, we did our confirmation, which normally waits till like nine to twelve for that confirmation. But they just got it all the way in two years, which so meant a whole lot of catechism learning. But then when I got to Illinois, those people I was in school with were going through their first communion or their confirmation, and I'd just sit in the classroom with the teacher and shoot the breeze because I didn't have to go to all the stuff they were having to go to. Yeah, you're, you um, already knew it all. You were ahead of the curve. Well, yeah, I was pre-qualified. Mm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so you went to Catholic school? I went to Catholic school a, all eight elementary okay. years. Oh, wow. Wow. Three different schools. So when you're the new kid- Did you have friends from- did you have friends from like the like public schools or other private schools to like compare and, and mix? Because we had some of that growing up myself. Nope. Nope. Just kids from my well, I did I take that back. Uh kids I went to school with, because again, I was the new kid for a lot of the time, but the kids I went to school with, they had friends that went to public school. So I get exposed to them. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, but it's not the same, you know, if you're in the same school with them. Um, so but if no. you go, if go you go to Catholic school, do the, all those kids still go? Do they all go to the same church as well, or is, are they affiliated with each other? The schools and the churches. In my experience, yes, because the Catholic school okay. I went to were attached to Catholic churches. I'm not sure on standalones if they all go to the same parish or if they have different ones they go to. Um, certainly, in the Catholic high schools, they would be members of different parishes because that's more of a broad-based, not community-focused type of area. Um, But yeah, no, I'm no longer a practicing Catholic. When I got divorced from my first marriage, they kind of threw me out of the club that was made for you and me. So um, yeah, no more. You get thrown out of of church if you get a divorce? At, At that time, it was excommunicable. My mother, when she was divorced from my father, chapin when I was one and a half, maybe. Um, yeah, she was excommunicated. Period. Stop. That's it. No wow. Yeah, That's crazy. I think it's easier now since I haven't been in the club for a long time. I don't know what the rule changes have been, but yeah, no. I, it seems to be more laxed. Yeah, because I, I have some friends who are Catholic and they just sort of seem to get a, I guess you could, for lack of a better term, get away with whatever they want in terms of you know sin and morality uh with of course some exceptions obviously they still have rules but uh yeah no i mean i because i grew up eastern orthodox and technically my family is for the, you know for the most part eastern orthodox mm-hmm. but that is i, I that isn't comparable I, I would say to Catholic. i mean just by example it's way more relaxed i mean we had we had a bar in the basement of the church <laughs> so you know new year's eve came around you had new it's like you don't go to the you know, my no, the men in the family didn't go to the bar. They went to the church. Yeah, <laughs> and you know, pri- priests could priests could get married and have families yeah. and things like that. So it was, it was what What does it uh, mean to be excommunicated exactly? Basically, you're not allowed to participate in the sacraments. So taking communion, um, you can still come to church, but you're just kind of not allowed to 
participate in the sacraments. And that's like um, the 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 body of Christ and the blood that yeah. that the community. Okay. Yeah. But even that, wow. I mean, my my when my son passed away, before the daughters were born, um, we had him buried Catholic, and we went through the you know the funeral, and uh, the priest that was handling the funeral for us um, said, "Would you know there'll be a funeral mass? Would you be taking communion?" And I said, "Well, I haven't been to church in a really long time." Because I hadn't, I wasn't divorced yet, obviously, but I hadn't been to church in forever. And I had been not the best person on the planet. And he said, well, I'll hear your confession. And I said, you don't have time, Father. You're old. <laughs> I, it's going to take a while. Um, and he said, no, 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 no. Just go ahead and, and, and take communion if your heart's in the right place. And he was a tremendous priest. And uh, I said, well, if I ever get this excommunicated, he's same thing. If your heart's in the right place. So I think it has the, depends a lot on your upbringing. I was Boston Catechism and it was really strict. And again, mm. it's all changed now, I'm sure. And from what Marco says, I think you're right. I think it's gotten a lot more relaxed. I think what they saw was people running from the exits for many number of reasons, Planned Parenthood, for example, or contraception mm -hmm. or, uh, oh my God, abortion or divorce. Mm -hmm. And they saw people sprinting for the exits and went, well, wait a minute, come on back. We won't do that anymore. We won't do this anymore. But as far as That's I'm concerned. That, that they're going to be so strict and then they'll, they'll change their morality in order to keep more of a flock like that's that's crazy that that, that sounds very well it's hypocritical right like that's, that's insane to me you know to me that you would you would have such an extreme view and then just change it because things are happening your way i think there's a whole lot of value in organized religion regardless of the flavor you pick or what you're born into but i think people get benefit from it i think they get comfort from it i think they get fellowship from it and i'm totally for that for the people that get right. the rewards for sure. from it. But for me, in my perspective, organized religion has been founded on blood, money, and fear. And I'm very spiritual, but I don't necessarily want to be associated with that particular structure. I can um, understand that. I, I see myself as that way. Is there anything, though, that you miss? I, a lot of times people miss aspects of the community that religion is actually, I think, most religions, at least to me, seem really good at uh, building welcoming communities as far as the in, the basic interactions between people that want to socialize, you know, whatever. Some people don't need a big reason to get together, in other words, right? It's all like, right. okay, we all go to church. Fine, we go to church. You know, it could be whatever. We all go to drag races. All right, we all go to drag races, okay. whatever. Is there anything like that that you miss? You know, it was weird for me, my particular uh, growing up and just history of the whole thing, because, uh, like I said, my mom was divorced when I was a baby still. Um, and we lived with my grandparents until we moved to Chicago and it was just the two of us. Um, so I went to school, she went to work, uh, and we didn't really socialize with a whole lot of people from church. It was pretty much, you went to church cause that was the rule. Um, but so, yeah, I didn't really get any of that sense of fellowship for myself. Mm. I was uh, blown away. <laughs> I used to call it the theatrics. I was blown away by the pomp. I was blown away by the pageantry, the magnificent music, the soaring cathedrals. Um, to yeah. the point where they would hand out the bulletin at, at the 
service and I go, oh, it's the playbill. Um, you know, it's the program. It's yeah. <laughs> And it's interesting how a lot of the alternative religions began springing up somewhere in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, you know, Poplar Creek is a good example where it was originally in a movie theater on Northwest Highway in Palatine. It was the Poplar Creek Theater. And a woman I worked with at Friday's at the time took me there on a couple Sundays. And it was it was Godspell. It was Jesus Christ Superstar. It was a rock concert talking about Jesus. And it was like, okay, mm. great. Okay. This is fun. They were getting people spiritually involved in a method that no longer related to them on organized religion. And now, Poplar Creek is huge, gigantic. It is. I was going to say, yeah, that it, that's an inch, that, that there has to be a documentary, or if there isn't, there should be one on on their ascension, their their growth. So, there is Poplar Creek. Is it like a one of the modern churches kind of thing? Is that what they or they just do like? Yep. Uh, like, I can't even think of, I can vision it, but I can't think of how to there, articulate it. I, I, I don't know for certain, but to me, they're, from what I've seen and what I've, you know, gone to see, they're very evangelical like in a, the way, like, like a mega church. Yeah. They're, they're, it's of. very, it's very, like you said, like alternative. It's, it's rock and roll Jesus for sure. <laughs> rock and roll it Jesus. is. Yeah. But it you know, um, people get things from that. And I say, fine. right. I really do. Um, yeah. Bill Hybels was the guy that started it up. And uh, I think like a lot of people, as he got more rich and more powerful, the corruption just kind of snuck in and he ended up having to be relieved of his duties um, and later found out that he was involved in some scandals in the state of Michigan. And they basically said, yeah, you can't do business in the state of Michigan anymore. So, mm. you know, everybody's got a skeleton. I've got a whole closet full. So I'm not throwing stuff sure, out. Sure. I'm, yeah. No, I think about that a lot myself. It's like it, it would be a bad idea if somebody just knocked on my door and gave me twenty million dollars, for example. <laughs> you know, so I, I can't guarantee how often I'd be a good person. You know, it's it's too corrupting. But right. all right, so we've been talking for a while now. I had an idea. Um, uh, well, let's let's start to wrap it up a little bit. But I wanted to bring across like some weird idea. So something I do that's kind of like a fun thought experiment is when we talk to people or when I interview someone, I, I think about how well their different occupations or vocations would combine at the same time. So do you think it would be, do you think being an actor makes you a good pilot as well or vice versa? Like do you, cause I find that for myself, at least as I go from job to job through life, there's just good things that I learn. Right. And they, they combine, right. They, they become, a, they translate, they become like a soup in my over. mind. So sometimes, you know, if I'm, you know, I might be riding a horse, but I'm thinking like a surveyor, let's say, right. And I'm, I'm, I'm like measuring things while I'm on the back of a horse. And there's been yeah. moments like that. Do you do that? Are you that kind of person too? You know, one of the things I realized I was in 25 years in mortgage banking systems management and in mortgage banks, they didn't have a giant glass house computer room with just nobody, but tech geeks. They basically had people that knew something about computers. I mean, I was there at the early, early, oh, early computerization of, of mortgage banking. I'm talking 1982. So you kind of garnered a lot of knowledge and crammed it all in your head and you became this little niche career guy that could do anything. So we were installing workstations, pulling cable, loading software, configuring applications, all this stuff, and then training users. So when I was working for Washington Mutual and I got right-sized out of my job, unless I wanted to move for Cali to California with the same amount of money, I said, mm, can't do it. 
So I left mortgage banking and needed a new career and went back and thought, well, okay, what have I enjoyed in the business world? And it's been the training aspect. So I basically put myself in my own schooling and knowledge and gathering and started to become a trainer. And from an acting perspective, that's awesome. And I knew a lot of actors who would also do training gigs. And it made a lot of sense because in the end, you're just, it's just communication and answering questions before they're asked and um, kind of the same things an actor does. So I think it's been a good blend for me. As a pilot, probably not so much. Okay, folks, we're going down, but let me tell you a couple jokes. <laughs> I know some good jokes before we die. No, yeah. Yeah, I was wondering how that would work out. So, okay, if... Um, I guess the last thing I have to ask you is um, if you had to give good advice to yeah. save your life, what would it be? If I had like to right give now to save my own life? Yes. A bolt of lightning is on its way down. And if you don't give the best advice you can think of right now, you're done. Protect everyone. Oh, else. you mean like to like a young person? To add whatever. Okay. The best advice you have for the universe. Uh, protect everyone else you can. I, like I really, I'm trying to think of the best piece of advice. If the bolt is I'll, coming, I'll send off the assassin. <laughs> yeah, if the bolt's coming right between my eyes, I'm like, oh my god, there's people around here. Get the heck out of the way. Get out of here. If I'm doomed, especially, that's the best piece of advice I think I could offer anyone. Oh, outside of don't get hit by lightning. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so protect protect those around you, the ones that you care about. Sure. That's good advice. Even if you don't care about them. I mean, yeah. as much as a you know, left wing I will pound my little fist until the day I can no longer do that against controlling right wing, etc. Bottom line is if they're standing I, next to me, I don't want them to get hit by lightning either. Right. You know, that's interesting. I, I did a psycholo- I love psych psychology tests. Um and I had one that gave me basically told me that I'm like 80 some percent more likely to like, like protect someone else over myself. Hmm. And that's very strange. And I, like, I agree with that. Like, it's very strange, it's strange that, like, because it, it goes against self-preservation. It does. Which is what mm-hmm. you're kind of I should be programmed. Yeah. I should be programmed to like value myself first, mm-hmm. but you know, I, I have that. My grandma, my grandmother's that way. Right. She'll, she'll, give the shirt off her back she'll take a bullet for a stranger and i and i've i've always been that way but i i can never explain why that is you know what i mean like is it is it habitual is it genetic well i wonder if it has to do with that you seeing the value that others potentially have like they they have a not necessarily a greater value than yourself but you see the value and i do well you know what that may be it you want to preserve because i i am the kind of person and you've you've caught me doing this where like i will reign my own ability yeah. to let others pass me yeah. like, like no, first like place in, doesn't like matter in, to me yeah, kind of games, thing. You, yeah. You let other people win so that they can feel the joy of winning and, but you try and do it sneakily, but sometimes it doesn't work. Yeah, Zach's been around me too much. He's, he's he catches me. <laughs> yeah. Well, Hey Dave, thanks. Thanks for doing this, man. I, yeah. I don't, um, um I've never done a any other questions for you. No, yeah, I, I mean, I, we, shit, Zach and I could do this all day, so we, we have to stop at <laughs> some understand. point. You know? 
I mean, that's how this started. We were, we were having three, four hour conversations. I'm like, dude, why don't we just have a microphone running? This is ridiculous. You know? Yeah. I like it. At least for prosperity. Absolutely. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank absolutely. you very much, Dave. It's good talking to you. Likewise. If you like what you're hearing, or even if you don't, that also helps. <laughs> yeah. Especially if you're still listening, then please consider supporting the show. We're working hard on our passion to create quality content, and we want to bring you much more. Indeed, we've got big plans for what we want to add to Audio Pong, and we'd also love to hear from you, the audience, on topics or content Zach and I can create for you. Visit AudioPong on RedCircle.com for more information on where to support the show and where to listen. Also, feel free to contact us directly through email with AudioPong at gmail.com. Be happy. Be healthy. And, and have, have a metal, metal life. life.